as we talked about in Sunday school, if your heart was not blessed already by all of that this morning, you ain't got a heart, you got a thumping gizzard and you need to get saved today. We're going to continue to worship as we turn to the 11th chapter of Luke. In honor of last Sunday being Father's Day, I figured I would open this morning's message with some dad jokes. I mean, who doesn't love a good dad joke? Noah, this is going to be the best part of your week right here, son. So without further ado, here is this week's top ten bad jokes. Some of you know that for the past three weeks I've been on a keto diet. I thought about going on an almond diet, but that's just nuts. Why do chicken coops only have two doors? If they had four, they'd be chicken sedans. Y'all want to hear a joke about paper? Never mind, it's terrible. Get it, terrible? They're getting better. Why did the scarecrow win an award? He was outstanding in his field. Noah, you ready? What do you call a fake noodle? What? An imposter! <laughs> Last Sunday I mentioned, this one's for Will, I was reading a Max Lucado book. This week I've been reading a book about anti-gravity. It's impossible to put down. <laughs> Why did the Invisible Man turn down the job offer that paid him a million dollars a year? Couldn't see himself doing it. <laughs> What's Forrest Gump's password? One Forrest One. One Forrest One. <laughs> Next time you go into a Japanese restaurant, as you walk out, tell the first person you meet coming in the door, I would not order the sushi if I was you. It's a little fishy. <laughs> and number one, what do you call a deer with no eyes? Oh, uh, no, no idea. <laughs> So what's the moral of that story? Dr. B, please don't tell any more dad jokes. The moral of the story is this. No one is neutral about dad jokes. You either love them or hate them, take them or leave them. You think they're terrible or they're awesome. Jesus said the same about himself. No one is neutral when it comes to him. <coughs> Verse 23 of Luke chapter 11, he said, Whoever is not with me is uh, against me. We live in a culture that increasingly espouses the myth of neutrality. Everybody gets a trophy. Everybody is a winner. There's no winner or losers. Every view is equally valid. There's no absolute truth. Gender and sexuality, there's no male or female that God created. It's multiple and fluid and it might change a hundred times in your lifetime. The culture war, there's no moral absolutes. We live in the days of Judges 21-25. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And this idea of neutrality is a myth and sadly the church instead of influencing the culture has allowed the culture to influence her I would say, yeah, infect her because neutrality is a virus. And you know what a virus will do to you. It will sicken you. You don't believe me, read a commentary 
listen to a Bible scholar, watch a TV preacher, and you'll hear such as this. Is Jesus even the historical person? Was He virgin born? Did He even do miracles? Did He really die on the cross? Did He really raise from the dead? Is the Bible without errors? Is Jesus the only way to be saved? Can't there be other ways for people to be saved? Brothers and sisters, these are not questions nor topics that even allow for neutrality. C.S. Lewis said there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And Scripture teaches us that a spiritual war is raging from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 20. And Christ warns us that there are no Switzerlands in this war. There is no neutrality in the Christian life, period. And what we the church need, if you want to get saved from a virus, what do you do? You go get a shot to get inoculated from it. We need a fresh shot of God's Word to neutralize this uh, virus of neutrality. And there's no better place for us to find that than in the 11th chapter of Luke after Jesus has exercised a demon and then teaches a crowd. So this message is going to be in two parts, no neutral ground. This is our first part, so stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word, Luke 11. We'll start in verse 14 and read to 32. Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign of the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Word of God, to the people of God, preach in the power of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today. And Father, we acknowledge that we are absolutely a hundred bazillion percent dependent upon you. Father, I cannot get in this pulpit and preach your Word without your help, without your Holy Spirit speaking through me, Father. Father, we can't understand one single word of your Word 
without your Holy Spirit guiding us. And so, Father, I pray in the remaining time that we have that, Father, you will just speak through me and, Father, you will pour your Holy Spirit out upon this place that you will give each and every one of us, starting with me, ears to hear and eyes to see what you would have to say to us and a heart that would be molded like the clay. Father, that we would just be in your hands in the potter's hands and you would mold us you would make us different that we would walk out of here different than we walked in and we would be the hands and feet of Jesus as you've called us to be please forgive us in the ways in which we failed you thank you for this time we come to remember Father the great sacrifice in which your flesh was torn and Father the veil was then torn afterwards that we even have the ability to come to you boldly with our prayer request today we ask you to bless the rest of the service for us in Jesus wonderful name we pray Amen so look first with me at the transformation that's in verse 14 if you'll notice Luke devotes very little time and attention to the miracle itself that Jesus does he devotes the vast majority of his time and attention to Jesus teaching that follows there's one verse given to the man's transformation two verses to the people's reaction and 16 verses to Jesus teaching a refutation that said I do not want us to miss some important truths and applications in this one verse alone so look at verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. So three things I want us to look at. Jesus' ministry, his messiahship, and his mission. First, his ministry. You look at Matthew 4.23, during the three years of our Lord's public ministry here on the earth, in a nutshell, it was this. Preach, teach, and heal. What all did he heal? In a nutshell, everything. We see this in the Gospels. He healed fever, dropsy, blood disorders, blindness, withered hands, leprosy. That ought to tell us right there, I don't care what you've got. I don't care if you've got stage 4 cancer. You've got something doctor said nobody can cure. You can go to Jesus and there is the opportunity that He is going to save you and heal you of that. Amen? I don't care what it is. But most succinctly, if you look back at Luke 4... It says in verse 40, Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And so part of his healing is this, exorcisms. And so look at now his Messiahship. Turn back to Luke, stay there at Luke 4. I mean, all of this is in accord with what the Old Testament prophesied of the Messiah. How would the people know when the Messiah came? Luke 4, 18-19. This was in Jesus' inaugural sermon in Nazareth. He picked up the, prophet, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he read where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Would you not agree that part of what those who are at, uh, oppressed and need to be uh, set at liberty would be those that are demon-possessed. Mm -hmm. So right here, exactly what Jesus was doing, and those who were best acquainted with the Scriptures, the Pharisees and the scribes, should have been the first ones to go, Jesus, you are the Messiah. But their pride and other things and their religion and their rituals blinded them to the truth of what the scriptures showed about the Messiah and what Jesus was proving and what he was doing. Alright, so lastly, under this, Jesus' mission. 
There's something more subtle and even more profound going on here. These exorcisms are way more than if you come to me and you've got a sinus infection or pneumonia and I heal you with some antibiotics and breathing treatments. There's more going on than just Jesus healing a man that is mute with a demon. Below the surface, a war is raging. All three synoptic gospels portray a conflict between Jesus and the forces of evil. Think about it. The battle in the wilderness. He's tempted in the wilderness by who? Satan. Who possessed Judas? Satan. Who desired to sift the disciples? Satan. And so here's Jesus exercising demons. And think of all that he exercised. He exercised one in a synagogue. He exercised many at sunset. A blind and mute man. The Gerasene demonite. A Syrophoenician woman's daughter. Mary Magdalene. A man that was mute. In Luke 13 when we get there. A woman that was bent. He is at war against Satan. And he is not taking a neutral stance. He's not here to say... Well, Satan's here and oh well. What is he here to do? Fulfill Genesis 3.15 and crush Satan's head. That's what he's here to do. You can't be neutral about crushing Satan's head, can you? And so he sees an opportunity here and he seizes it and he casts out this demon that had held this man mute. And I mean, when you think about it, is it any wonder the crowd was amazed? I mean, this man was speechless and he begins to talk. I mean, it's not that he was a man of few words. He was a man of no words. I mean, he's walking around, you know, trying to do sign language before there's even sign language and saying, I need a sandwich or my toe hurts or something. And everybody's like, what's wrong with this guy? We can't understand him. And then all of a sudden, boom, Jesus exercises this demon out of him and he just starts talking. You think he's shut up for uh, an hour? And probably people are like, would you please go home? <laughs> What would you have done if you would have been there? What would you have said? This is amazing. This is incredible. I've never seen anything like this in my whole life. Would you potentially have been a little alarmed at it? So here's the point of application. No one in the crowd was neutral. Well, I don't know if demon possession is a real thing. Heck, who knows if demons are even real? You know, this is just kind of scary stuff, and so I just choose not to talk about it. Does that sound like what people might say today? Brothers and sisters, demons are real, and demon possession today is still real. All disease is not demonic, but some is. Ed Warren, he and his wife Lorraine, if you've ever seen The Conjuring, he and his wife were the only people ever allowed outside the Vatican to do exorcisms. It's a true story about an exorcism that they performed. And when I watched that movie and I saw the last line come by that he uh, said, I was like, whoa. This is what he said, the fairy tale is true. The devil exists, God exists, and for us as people, our very destiny hinges upon which one we elect to follow. You see, nobody in the crowd stuck their head in the sand and refused to believe in demons and Satan. But you know what a lot of Christians across America do? That. 
A 2010 LifeWay survey, 4 in 10 millennials believe that Satan is not a real person but a symbol of evil. And you say, well, that's just millennials. We knew they were touched anyway. <laughs> no. 2009 Barna survey, the same number of Christians as a whole said that. 4 out of 10 believe Satan is not a real person and claim to be a Christian. What Bible are they reading? And what church are they being taught in? They need to get out of it and they need to actually get a translation of the Bible that teaches them something. Brothers and sisters, if we choose to stick our head in the sand and take a neutral stance at this, it is at your own peril. Satan will not eat your lunch. He will eat you. Do you understand that? He's not going to eat your lunch. He's going to eat you. 1 Peter 5.8 He roams around like a lion seeking whom he may what? Bite? Devour. Devour. Eat up. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says don't be ignorant of his schemes. And 11.14 in 2 Corinthians that he masquerades as what? A dude with a pitchfork and horns and a red suit. An angel of light. He's stealing, killing, and destroying still today. He's stealing, killing, and destroying in our own association right now. And brothers and sisters, I heard Dr. Adrian Rogers preach this morning. He was talking about getting, I never thought about this, and he talked about how God separated the two men, y'all, the two groups of men. Y'all remember that? They go down to the water and he takes one group of men and he doesn't take the other. The enemy is right there. One group of men does what? They get down and they take a drink of water and expose their head with the enemy right there. You know what the enemy's going to do? Chop your head off. What's the other group? Looking around. On the constant alert. Brothers and sisters, that second one better be us. You don't think that you can fall into a pattern of sin? You don't think that the devil can eat your lunch and eat you? You don't think that the devil could do the same thing to me and would love to take down me because then he's going to destroy my witness and my testimony and potentially destroy a church. And so I better be on the alert and you better be praying for me. Because you're in the battle too, but I'm in the battle, I'm in the trench every day for you. And Satan wants to come eat me. Now we stick our head in the sand and pretend that this stuff is not real and it's just scary. My brothers and sisters, it's going to cost us if we do. Alright, so that's the transformation look now at the reaction. There's basically four reactions to this man's transformation. One is some were stunned. Look at verse 14. It says, And the people marveled. And I put in my notes, hashtag duh. I mean, can you imagine... What would you have thought, said, or done as we said? I mean, this isn't an appropriate response. This is the only adequate response to Jesus and His work. It's to be amazed. So are they ready to, David, crown Him with many crowns? Nope. You think they're ready to bow down to Him as Messiah? Nope. You see, this term in the Greek can be positive or negative depending on the context. As Dr. Bach says, he said, the amazement is at the reality of the unusual work and not necessarily that it represents something good. People can be amazed and not like what they see. Amen? Think about this. 
If we lead Christ-like lives, is it going to annoy some people? Yep. If we witness for Christ, are they going to potentially be angered? The truth is that Jesus' work demands a response, but the response is not guaranteed. Let me give you another illustration that might be a little more painful. When folks come in here and they're lost and they come Sunday after Sunday and myself and Jimmy present the gospel through the Word and and, uh, Brother David presents it through song and comes time for the altar call or you have heard clearly the Word of God to do something and you turn a deaf ear to it. A response is commanded but it doesn't necessarily guarantee what your response is going to be because sometimes people sit in their seat Sunday after Sunday and they walk out and they're no different than they walked in. You see the point? There used to be a thing that we sang in second or third grade. You know, you we're walking along and we come to a law where you can't go over it. You can't go under it. So I guess we'll go around it. That's what they were doing with Jesus. Well, we can't get over Him and we can't get under Him and we'll just go around Him. If we can't do anything else, we'll discredit Him. And so that's what they're going to do because the second thing, response is that some scoff. Look at verse 15. Some of them said He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. That word in the Hebrew and Greek literally means that Satan is the Lord of dung. How do you like that one? And some here is not just some random group of people. Per Matthew and Mark's accounts, it's the scribes and the Pharisees, those who most should have recognized it for what it was, the finger of God by the Son of God, yet they ascribe it to voodoo black magic. Their minds were already made up about Jesus, weren't they? They were blind and deaf. Dr. Alistair Begg said they were living on the island of unbelief. And so they began to offer up their explanation what just happened. You see, what had happened was, maybe this is where fake news got its origin, right? And so they commit the unpardonable sin, the ultimate blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. They ascribe instead of to the power of God what Jesus had done to the power of Satan. And even worse, their judgment was sure because in Matthew 12, 31, it says every sin will be forgiven except for what? The sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is what this sin is. Number three is some salt. Look at verse 16. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. They want more proof, which to me is just mind-boggling. I mean, was the exorcism not enough? How about the fact that Jesus knows what you're thinking? Was that not enough? How many more signs do you want? As Dr. Bach said, it's hard to know what would suffice. Two commentators said, one said, well, they just wanted him to make the heavenly body stand still. I guess Mars to just suddenly go, and stop moving. Nolan said he wanted him to turn back the sun or provide manna like Moses. Can I tell you, I don't care what he would have done. As I've got my notes for next week, he could have done backflips off of the rings of Saturn and it would not have mattered. They would not believe because the problem was not here. The problem was here. And their mind was already made up. Their heart was brick hard. And they were not going to believe in Him as Messiah. I don't care what He did. They had plenty of evidence to make the proper decision, did they not? 
And here's the application. Do you know that little has changed in 2,000 years? What do folks want? If you witness enough to folks, what do they want? I want more and more evidence. Cassie, give me more and more evidence. Give me more and more. How much do you want? Listen to what Jesus said to people that carry on like that. You remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16? And he, Abraham, said to him, If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. You can take an atheist and Jesus could come back and do backflips off of Saturn onto earth. It does not matter. They wouldn't believe. They've already got this. If they won't believe that, dust the dirt off of your feet. And then look at verse 27. One shouting. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you in the breast at which you nurse. And this is just like a woman to blurt something out of turn, isn't it? I'm kidding, but I'm not. Why'd she do this? You probably could cut the tension with a knife, don't you think? Maybe she wanted to say, hey, Jesus, there are some that are responding positively to you, so she offers up a beatitude. Now let's see that one painted in the children's department. Verse 27. How would Jesus respond? Well, you'll have to come back next week to find out, but here's the application for it. Some are going to reject our invitations to church and to salvation, but brothers and sisters, not all are going to. Do you remember the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19? And Elijah's just like, Lord, let me go and die. I'm the only one left. I'm the only Christian left on the planet. What does the Lord say? Would you get up? You snotty-nosed little brat. Get up. I got 7,000 over here that haven't bent their knee to Baal and still love me. So many times we feel like I'm the only Christian left. Man, I've shared the gospel with 100 people in the last year and it ain't done nothing. You don't know what God has done with that. You share the gospel and then you let God be God. Some will ignore us, but not all. Alright, the kind of final application out of this is this for us on this section. Not one single person who saw this was neutral. And nothing has changed in 2,000 years. You remember what C.S. Lewis said? Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And so what do you say? On that day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. If you're here today, do you know Him as Lord and Savior? You're going to bow your knee one day to Him. You better get in on it now while you can do it willingly and blessedly versus unwillingly and painfully. Alright, so we looked at the transformation, the reaction. We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at the refutation. Jesus' answer refuted each of the reactions those that ascribed his power to Satan, those that wanted an additional sign, the one that bestowed a beatitude for time's sake. We're only going to look at the first one this morning and we'll look at the other two next week. So what Jesus does is he basically gives them a taste of their own medicine through means of, Amy, you'll like me with these words. I had to really go to the source for this. A polemic, a parable, and a picture. Well, let's look at a polemic first. Verse 17 
to 20. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus destroys their assertion that he cast out demons by Satan through three if-then arguments, if you want to circle them. The first is, if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? I mean, their accusation was illogical. If Satan is in the business of casting out his own demons, isn't that a formula for defeat? Isn't that a sure recipe for disaster? And so Jesus gives them two practical examples that everybody understands the kingdom divided. Israel understood from her own history that there had been a civil war and the countries had been torn apart. They knew a divided kingdom couldn't stand. We understand that with our own civil war in our own country and the fall of Rome. How did Rome fall? No one ever conquered it. It fell from within. And then a household divided. If your family is constantly squabbling, then what is that going to lead to? Ruins. So with Satan who demon-possesses folks involved in his own civil war, his own wicked version of the Hatfields and McCoys, that is ludicrous. Satan minus... Here's you some spiritual algebra. Satan minus Satan equals zero. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand Jesus' logic. And he destroys their argument. The conclusion is the satanic proposal is excluded by logic. Second is if... I cast out demons by Beelzebul. By whom do your sons cast them out? See, we can't understand this, but in the Greek, your sons is emphatic. That's a big ouch. This is self-incriminating. This is a slam dunk, a home run. They're caught in the trap of their own making. Put in your margin, not going to turn there, but put in your margin, Acts 19.13. Jesus is appealing to the common practice in his day of Jewish exorcists. There were Jewish exorcists that would cast out demons. And remember in Acts 19.13, they come just trying to do it in the name of Jesus. And so if the scribes and Pharisees say that casting out a demon means you're in league with the devil, then the Jewish people that did this, your sons, guess who they're in league with? The devil. Jesus' argument is overwhelming. Not to mention, how do you think that the Jewish exorcist would have taken that? Now, Kyle, I want you to go down to your rabbi and I want you to ask him how he cast out that demon last week. You see, they wanted their cake and they wanted to eat it too. Because when Jesus, when their sons did it, when my rabbi does it, when my pastor does it, it's by who? God. The power of God. Now when Jesus does it, it's by who? Oh no, now suddenly it's the power of Satan. Not to mention when you then went and told your rabbi, hey, now Jesus said you're casting out demons by power of Satan. You think he'd take very kindly to that? He think you would take, he would take very kindly to you telling him that he was in league with the devil? And that's why he says, they will be your judges. Alright, so then the third is, If it's by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Their accusation, what it really is, is an admission of Jesus' power and authority and origin. This is a slam dunk and one. It's a grand slam. 
Kind of like Pascal's wager I put in my notes. If I believe in God and there's no God, I lose nothing. Shame on me. If you don't believe in God and God exists, you lose everything. Shame on you. If the scribes and Pharisees are right that it's by the power of Satan, which Jesus had basically already destroyed, then shame on Jesus, right? But if they're wrong, it's by the finger of God, shame on them for the kingdom of God has come. And as Luke 7.30 says, they missed the very purpose of God because they refused to repent and be baptized. And don't think that the finger of God reference wouldn't be soon lost on them knowing that that was what Pharaoh did. So Jesus has destroyed their argument. So a couple points of application. By no means is it uncommon for people to resort to slander when honest opposition is helpless. You know what the human mind always tends to think? The worst. And what does the human ear prefer? The derogatory rather than the complimentary. How often do we tend to think the worst of people? How often do we deliberately assign low or bad motives to someone? I had that happen this week. Something I said I didn't even say and I was subscribed a low motive for it. How often do we kill reputations by our idle chatter? I mean, what if this person went and told other folks, yeah, I'll talk about said that, blah, 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 blah. I didn't even say it. Kill my reputation. I didn't even say something. Second is, Jesus' proof the kingdom had come is the fact that folks were healed and walking in health. Brothers and sisters, can I tell you that y'all know some folks that need soul salvation, but you also know, need, know folks that need whole salvation. How many of you in here know people don't just need to be saved from the penalty of sin, they need to be saved from the power of sin? Every one of us needs saved from the power of sin in our life. Amen? Number three, folks wanted the Christ of their own making. Why did they reject Christ? You know why? Because he didn't fit the bill. He's born in a manger, the backwaters of Bethlehem, some mangy peasant girl Mary. In their mind, uh, in John, they said that he was the offspring of sexual immorality. He's a carpenter from Nazareth. I mean, can any good thing come from Nazareth? He's a prophet from Galilee. Won't you search the scriptures and see that none came from there? Well, they missed the boat because Jonah actually came from Galilee. Have you not read? Now going to all the wrong parties. He's eating without washing his hands. He's plucking grain on the Sabbath, healing on the Sabbath, pronouncing woes on them, saying John the Baptist who dresses like a freak, you know, preaches fantastic. Well, what about our preaching? What about our clothes? Don't we look good? Don't we preach good? You know what, brothers and sisters? Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. Folks still want a Jesus of their own making. It'll meet their expectations, dance to their tune, fit their ideals, and affirm their lifestyle and agree with their interpretation of the Scriptures. Alright, next is a parable. I'm trying to get through these. Quickly look at verse 21 to 23. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe, but one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So Jesus is basically saying there's a spiritual war going on. He pictures Satan as a strong man in armor, but that Jesus is one stronger than he. He invades Satan's territory, attacks him, overpowers him, strips away all his armor that he thought was going to protect him, kicks in his teeth, and wins the war. And so Jesus is telling the Pharisees, hey, I'm not the devil's sidekick. I kick the devil's backside. Jesus is my 
or the uh, Jesus says to him that the devil is my enemy and I'm superior to him. So think about it. Again, there is no neutral ground. There's a war going on here. There's no third side. It's either Jesus or Satan. Everybody there had to make a choice who to follow. And ask yourself, look at verse 23. Are you helping gather or scatter the harvest? No one is neutral when it comes to sharing the gospel. If you don't share the gospel, you actually are not being neutral. You are sinning. Because the Bible is clear that he who knows to do what is right and does not do it, it is sin. Your pastor just told you if you go out this week and you don't share the gospel with somebody, you have sinned. And we need to be up here falling on our faces. I read Clay's report from Southern Baptist Convention. We as Southern Baptists need to get out and share the gospel. I'm tired and sickened of week in and week out not seeing people saved. Aren't you? Do you not care that your neighbor is going to die and go to hell without Christ? Then do something about it. Invite them to lunch. Invite them to go play golf. Invite them to come over and watch a baseball game. Something. We're not neutral if we just don't do it. And think about this. Everyone who needs to be saved is in the palace of the strong man. I want you to picture your lost neighbor. Picture your lost in-law who probably gets on your nerve. I picture my own mother. Picture your lost co-worker. Your lost friend. Maybe even somebody who annoys you so bad and you know that they're lost. They're in the grips of Satan and they're in His palace and they need delivered through the power of Christ. And maybe Jesus wants to use you to open up your mouth and do it. How does faith come about? Hearing. Hearing comes how? By the Word of God. Maybe God's going to be, you're going to be the vehicle God uses to get them out of Satan's palace. And number three, Jesus' power is far superior to Satan's. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. This old boy isn't just saved from the penalty of sin. When I was lost and addicted to pornography, Jesus didn't just save me to put me into heaven. He saved me to give me an abundant life and He delivered me from that. Glory, hallelujah. I thank Him so much for that. But you know some people that need delivered. What are you doing about it? Finally, a picture. Look at what he says in 24 to 26. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Jesus illustrates the danger of neutrality right here by telling the story of a man who is demon-possessed. The man's body is the demon's house and the demon for some reason decides to leave. Probably he was expelled by exorcism because that's what Jesus wants to point out. You don't just pull something out. You then got to put something in. 
So the demon then goes out in the desert searching for rest, looking for another home. One translation says, looking for some unsuspecting soul that can bedevil. And finding no suitable home, it decides its first was pretty comfortable. Maybe nothing's taken up residence in its own home and it'll be free to return. And that's exactly the case. The man's house is swept and put in order, but it's empty. Maybe you read Oprah's latest self-help book. Maybe you read Joe Osteen's Have a New You by Friday. But he thought he'd clean up his life and he didn't put anything in there to replace it. And notice the man's condition is what? Instantly better. But he doesn't invite God into his house. He remained neutral. You know what happens in a spiritual vacuum? <coughs> Look at what it says. The demon comes back with what? A whole posse. Mm -hmm. Seven. More evil than itself. So it's more resistant to exorcism this time. And now the man's condition is what? Abominable. And his last state is worse than the first. Which leads us to a couple other applications before we close. And that's this. The fundamental truth is you cannot leave a person so empty. Mm -hmm. right. When God delivered my speech so that it didn't sound like some salty drunk sailor on Friday night... When God delivered me from the throes of the addiction of pornography, I didn't just need delivered from that stuff and then left empty and the house cleaned and swept in order. What I needed was the Holy Spirit to come into my life and something fill me, fill that Jesus-shaped hole in my heart and life so that I then could live a life that would glorify God. Because if I'd have just cleaned up and swept up the house... How many of you ladies, some of you men, have cleaned the house and you come back two days later and you go, what are you pigs doing around here? This place is as filthy as it was last week when I didn't even clean anything. Why do I clean and work like a slave for y'all people? Do you see the illustration? You don't just sweep it clean and say, oh well, hope it's going to go well. Brothers and sisters, the people you know, they don't just need a better you they don't need some self-help book. They don't need pop psychology. They don't need to go to a psychiatrist. They need to come to the Word of God and to Jesus Christ. Amen. That is their only hope. Amen. You sweep the house all day long, you won't. And heaven forbid what might enter into it after that. Number two, we cannot build a religion on negatives. We cannot come in here, and Jimmy and I can't come in here on Sunday morning and tell y'all don't do this and don't do that and don't do this. You have a very right that if we say don't do this and don't do that, to then say, Pastor, what can I do? It's not the Christian life. It's not just a list of negatives. It's a list of positives. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's to love your neighbor. It's to serve the Lord. As we talked about, work heartily for Him. That's what you can fill your life with positively. You just think it's a bunch of negatives and faith. Satan's going to find a lot for you to do, isn't he? And then third, the best way to avoid evil is to do good. Can I tell you, you know, some of you may know I've got a garden at my house and missed a zucchini under the plant and i got a zucchini bat now that's about that long. But you know the first part of the season because there was so much extra room in that garden that I was constantly out there pulling weeds. You know, now that the zucchini, each plant's about that big around and the tomato plants are about this tall, I very rarely have to go out there and get a weed. You know why? 
because it's filled with something good. Yes, we need the sin out of our life, brothers and sisters, but we need Jesus in there to put in the fruit so that it'll be the beautiful garden that He wants. He created you a masterpiece. Why? So you can just sit around and eat bonbons until Jesus comes back? No! To do the good works that He created you for. A beautiful garden to display for Him. And I think one of the best uh, applications of this, as Billy said, is stinking thinking. You don't need to say, well, let me just not think about the negative stuff. You need to fill your brain with the positive stuff. Alright, in closing. Y'all are like, hallelujah, finally he's done. pastor was once asked about his church membership and told the old guy that asked him, he said, well, we've got 800 members. And the old guy said, well, how many of them are active? pastor said, all of them. Half are working with me and half are working against me. Now y'all let that sink in for a minute. Why did I put that in there? Because it's not about what any pastor feels. It's about imagine how Jesus feels. Jesus said you're either working with me or you're working against me. And I reframed the prayer that he prayed over Jerusalem. Listen to this. This is a Buffyism. Oh, America, America. The country is full of so-called Christians who straddle the fence. Oh, America, America, from sea to shining sea, churches filled with church members who fight against me. Who fail to see that inactive Christians or passive Christians or indifferent Christians are contradictions. Oh, crossway, crossway. Do you not yet understand there is no neutrality in the Christian life? There are no Switzerlands in this spiritual war. If you ain't with me, you're against me. How often I would have you get off the sidelines, strap on the whole armor of God, and through me living in you, storm the very gates of hell. And you would not. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we thank you for your grace, Father, and for your beautiful mercy. Father, each and every one of us needs it desperately, including this old boy. Father, I pray that through your word today that you have convicted us of something in our life, Father, that we need to do different. I pray that something different for every person in here may not even have anything to do with neutrality. Father, that you're just working in the lives of each and every one of us through your Holy Spirit. So, Father, I pray as we come to this invitation that, Father, it wouldn't be a time of dryness. That, Father, it'd be a time in which the oil of the Holy Spirit comes down and greases us, Father, in which the power of the Holy Spirit raises up dead bones and brings them to life. And, Father, we come before you renewed today to come and want to do your work. Father, we thank you as we then get ready to partake of communion. Father, we just thank you so much for Jesus being willing to come and to be beat and then, Father, to be hung on a cross and give up his precious blood and his spirit. Father, we could be right in your eyes and then not to stay dead but to be raised again. That, Father, through belief in him, we too have been raised and justified. We ask your blessing now upon this time of invitation for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Remember what I said, everybody needs to be saved.
that's being kept in the palace of the strong man. You say, well, that ain't me. I'm not in the grips of the strong man. You may not be a drug addict in a ditch or a murder on death row or an abusive husband or a child molester, but unless you're in the army of Christ, you're bound in the dungeon of the strong man. Amen? Church attendance ain't going to free you. All the good stuff in the world ain't going to free you. All the uh, pristine service resume ain't going to free you. Only the transforming, liberating power of Jesus Christ is going to do that. Physical death plus spiritual death equals eternal death. If you remain spiritually dead and physically die, you'll be lost for all eternity. You say, I don't need Christ. I'm pull it together. I'm clean up my life. I'm drink a little self-help Kool-Aid. Jesus says, fooey to that. It tells the story of the returning spirit. Come this morning if you've never done it. And put your faith and trust in Christ that He can get the filth off of you so He can clothe you, clothe you with His righteousness. Get the weeds of sin out of your life that He can put the fruit that He wants to in your life. Remember, brothers and sisters, We've been going through experiencing God on Wednesday night. What did we learn this week? When God speaks His Word, that is an encounter with God. That's right. And then what must you do? Respond immediately. Now some of us have come in here for the last 33 Sundays and we've had an encounter with God and we walked right back out that door and done nothing about it. Is that going to be you today? God has spoken. It's time for His people to respond. Let's stand and sing. Page 320. Oh, so are you weary and troubled. No light in the darkness you see. There's life for a look at the Savior And life for abundant and free Turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strange in the light.